Good evening, everyone, and uh, glad you're all here. Uh, let's start with prayer, and this is the prayer of St. Thomas before study. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Ineffable Creator, who from the treasures of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true font of light and wisdom and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of our minds. Disperse from our souls the twofold darkness into which we were born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants, refine our speech and pour forth upon us our lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to us all keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of our work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live and reign world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Great. Well, thank you again, TJ, for the opportunity to address uh, this topic tonight, man in the image of God. And since moral theology and the social doctrine of the church concern the good of the person as he relates to God and in society, it is fitting that we start any consideration of the church's social doctrine, as you are in this course of study, with an extended meditation and reflection on what is meant by the church when she speaks of of man as made in the image of God. And it is actually in the first chapter of sacred scripture in Genesis 1 where we first hear this terminology. And so you have the text of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 uh, in front of you. If you don't have it, I do have some extras up here. And I would like for us to start tonight by... Uh, just reading for a few moments uh, the text of Genesis 1, and then uh, I'd like to discuss a few elements of it. So if we could just take a few minutes uh, to read uh, that text of Genesis 1, um, which should be familiar to you all, uh, we'll then come back in just a minute and discuss it. Thanks. So, of course, the starting point for our reflection tonight would certainly seem to be Verse uh, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. But before the author of Genesis gives us a um, a this notion of that God has made us man in his image, he does a fairly good job of painting for us a portrait of God himself. And so, you know, one of the things I'm just interested in hearing uh, from you now is what sort of a portrait of God is presented uh, in which we are supposedly made in the image uh, of. And so just, you know, some things that strike you about the, the type of God that has been uh, presented in this chapter, the attributes of the God that has been presented in this chapter in whom we are made in the image.
Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, who, who, to whom is God speaking, right? When he says, let the waters, uh, you know, just for example, let the waters under the evening and there was morning a second day, right? So, so there is, from the very beginning of sacred scripture, even when there is no one else visibly in the picture here, there is uh, an implication of communion, right? That God is sharing his life, uh, with someone or something uh, or someone's else. So I think that's a great and very important observation. Other observations from the first uh, chapter of Genesis. Sure. Ordered. Ordered, yep. Okay, good. Sure, yes. So planning, order, great marks of the Aristotelian to mystic tradition, right? That's a joke. Absolutely. Or perhaps even that, and, and, and this is, uh, many theologians uh, express this, and the church herself expresses this, that creation is also made in the image of God, right? That it is... It is not uh, simply man made in the image of God. Man is made in the image and the likeness of God. But that uh, creation really serves to image God as well. And so I think many of the attributes that we see up to uh, verse 26, right, they're they're really uh, expressions of how creation itself images God. the, the benevolence images, the communion images, the relationship, right, which is at the heart of God's own life. Anything else about this first, these first few chapters? So everything you said, I think, is, is absolutely correct. Uh, I'll just make a few other uh, observations. Um, the text certainly views uh, man in relationship and in communion. Uh, which is uh, why I think um, this notion of man in the image of God has become so important again uh, in the last 60 or so years uh, since the uh, preparatory work before the Second Vatican Council through the Second Vatican Council. It really is, communion is a key theme, right, of the work of the resource mall theologians, uh, of which, you know, Pope Benedict, of course, is the most famous uh, exponent. So, uh, man is in relationship with God, with the earth, with his fellow person, uh, especially in the, uh, as we see in, in chapter two, in the sexual complementarity of man and woman together. Uh, man is also free. Uh, like God, he is not, as in some other ancient narratives, a particle uh, or a piece of God or some sort of fallen heavenly creature. Uh, The difference from other narratives yields another key insight here. I believe that man is not only free, but man has a dignity that is his own in relationship to God. He has his own dignity, man as man, person as person. Not something broken or deficient from the rest of creation, but, 
or in relationship to God, but that man is in his own dignity the crown of God's creation. I think this text also reveals to us that it is really quite silly to think about man or to speak about man without reference to God. Uh, he is the image of God, the text tells us. He's created uh, with, uh, by God, and he lives with God as a profound presence. And you see that throughout uh, these first couple chapters of Genesis, that, that God is really deeply, profoundly present uh, before the fall, especially in uh, man's life. And so religion, uh, the act of uh, giving to God his due, uh, giving to God his due, which is worship, uh, religion is part of man's makeup from the very beginning. And of course, St. Thomas Aquinas teaches us that worship actually belongs to the virtue and devotion belongs to the virtue of justice, right? That it is an act of justice to render unto God God's due, which is worship. And, and what we see here in this first chapter of Genesis is that it's impossible to separate man in his full dignity, man as, as he truly is meant to be, from the act of justice, which is religion, right? Which is worship. <clears throat> uh, and this is, frankly, an essential feature of our humanity, right? That, that, that humanity exists in relationship to God, that man has a capacity for God, man is lost without God, and it is proper and fitting for man to give worship to God as part of his humanity, as part of being man. Uh, this makes right atheism, or the uh, or a religion, the 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 attempt to live without religion, uh, very dehumanizing. Right, it is a um, it, it is an act of violence to the human person, right, to force him or to choose to live, for man to choose individually, to live without a relationship to God, right? And this is, uh, you know, at the heart, uh, for instance, of um, the, I think in a great many respects, the, the church's criticism of certain forms of, of totalitarian government that leaves no space for God, that leaves no space for religion. It is not that the church uh, asserts the prerogatives of religion for her own sake in totalitarian forms of government. It is that the church asserts the prerogatives of religion so that man can be man, so that man can be fully human and fully alive. Uh, man is free, right? He is, uh, and that is part of his image but he is also not God, and that is clear. The prohibition of the tree, you shall not eat of the tree, uh, is the reminder of this. Uh, man must remain obedient to the will of God, even in his freedom. And here we come up against one of the great um, uh, uh, challenges, perhaps the greatest challenge, I think, of understanding the church's moral teaching in the last 500 years, frankly, that, that my freedom and my dignity as a person is found in my relationship to God, is found in my obedience to God's will, and that God's will is not 
this external threat to my freedom. Uh, in, 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 in frankly, it's, it's not an external threat to my license to do whatever I want to do. And that one of the central errors of, of Protestantism, right, is that Protestantism, uh, particularly the, the Protestantism of Martin Luther and John Calvin, sets up a clash of wills. My will against God's will. And that simply God is stronger than I am. He will win every time. But fundamentally, God is a threat to my freedom. That my dignity is not found in participation in his life through the virtues and the sacraments. And so I am left to be, as Martin Luther said, a heap of dung covered over with uh, white snow. That God simply chooses to see something that is not there. That I cannot be transformed internally. I cannot participate in God's life. And I think what we see in this creation account, what we see in the church's teaching about the image of, of that man in the image of God, is the fundamental disharmony between the, the, the scriptural text, particularly in Genesis, as it relates to man being made in the image of God and ultimately remade in the image of Christ, and the Protestant conception that uh, my will is in a clash with God's will and that, I, that he is a threat, he is a permanent threat to my freedom, and in his life I cannot fully and actually participate. Does that make sense? That's a bit of an excursus, but I think it's important at this point, this stage in, in our com comments tonight, to point that out because it is so critical for laying the groundwork of the moral um, renaissance uh, that has happened uh, really starting with Pope Leo XIII's uh, encyclical Eterni Patris, uh, calling us back to a Thomistic Aristotelian conception of moral theology rooted in the virtues and rooted in sacramental theology and not simply rooted in my obligation to be obedient to a God who is stronger than I am. Also, man, uh, like God, is a steward of creation, and man, like God, works with dignity. And that work uh, is a participation uh, in the creation. And so this is why you will see in Catholic social teaching a great emphasis placed upon uh, man's stewardship of creation, man's uh, participation in creation as through his work, but also fundamentally the dignity of human work, right? That, that man uh, 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 achieves, perfects, uh, uh, perfects is probably too strong a word, but man uh, develops the image of God within him through meaningful labor. And so uh, you will see in the, in the principles of Catholic social teaching, subsidiarity and so forth, you will see an emphasis upon the dignity of work, right? That work is not... Um, uh, something uh, to be replaced by a government program, that work itself is something that gives us, bestows upon us uh, great dignity. And it, it starts here in Genesis 1. Uh, another insight from this passage, man lives in community from the start. 
uh, it is not good for man to be alone, as, as the passage says, and so God, or as Genesis 2 says, and so God immediately gives him companionship. God is imaged in relationship with his people and throughout sacred scriptures, uh, sacred scripture expressions and terminology of marriage are used to show this. Think in particular about the, work, um, the prophecy of Hosea, for example. One way, God, uh, one way man sorry, exercises the image of God is in love and through paternity, through sharing in God's fatherhood, and through the lordship entrusted uh, and exercised over creation uh, through work and labor. So our, our work, our dominion over creation, uh, our ability to fashion things uh, with intelligence, our ability, for instance, to become craftsmen, right? That is, that is not simply um, good from the perspective of it's good to, to have labor, it's good to be able to work with your hands. It is, it is a participation uh, through our own mental activity translated through uh, labor in, in the creative act and the creative power of God. Uh, sin destroys the unity of man's relationships and distorts the image. Nudity and shame are evidence of this distortion, as uh, we see later in the, in, the, in the book of Genesis. And look at the rest of Genesis, right? From Cain and Abel to, to Babel to even Joseph's relationship with his brothers, right? The rest of Genesis is kind of a, a discourse on this loss of unity, uh, on and, and the distorted image uh, that arises from uh, sin and from the loss of unity. So how then is this image uh, remade when it is uh, uh, scarred by sin? Of course, it is ultimately remade in Christ, uh, in the new covenant, but first by the gift of law and wisdom. And uh, I would point you especially to Psalm uh, 119, which is just such a beautiful um, discourse on the, the value of the law, the beauty of the law, but also man's relationship with the law. That man's relationship with the law is, um, uh, bestows a certain dignity. Uh, God gives these gifts, the law and wisdom, to his people as a means by which they can live the life God intends for them, a life in his image, even though Adam's transgression has cut them off from the source of their life. Yet these are external means. In the sacraments of the church, about which Pope St. Leo the Great says, when Christ ascended into heaven, he passed into his sacraments, we are given the internal means in which to share Christ's life, right? So the external signs that affect an internal reality, the reality of grace uh, living in our souls, right? This is, and, 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 and when Christ ascended into heaven, he passed into his sacraments, right? So Christ is, in every sense of the word, the new Adam, who becomes our life, a life that is continued to be given, that, that continues to be given to us in the church through her sacraments. And the image of God is restored in us uh, in sacramental life, 
in, in the life of the church, which is a subject for a whole other lecture, but it's important that we draw these connections uh, between the image of God and the church's teaching about the image of God ultimately remade in sacramental life uh, because we cannot forget right, that the church's social doctrine, the church's social teaching is uh, not something that stands alone. The church pronouncing it to the world uh, from, from within the church, speaking outside, the church's social doctrine is ultimately rooted in her sacramental life. That, that that's the sacraments are what orders uh, our life in Christ in the church. So in, in Christ, uh, the image lost in Adam is re-imaged and restored. And we hear some echo of this, I think, in the exultant, in the Paschal Vigil, uh, which we will hear in a few weeks. It is truly right and just with ardent love of mind and heart and with devoted service of our voice to acclaim our God invisible, the Almighty Father, and Jesus Christ, our Lord, His Son, His only begotten, who for our sake paid Adam's debt to the Eternal Father and pouring out His own dear blood, wiped clean the record of our ancient sinfulness. O truly necessary sin of Adam, destroyed completely by the death of Christ. And here we could just as easily sing and restored in us the image of God. O happy fault that earned for us so great, so glorious a redeemer. Right? That great line, O happy fault, O Felix culpa, that gained for us so glorious or so great a redeemer. For it is uh, Jesus Christ who reveals to man the fullness of his being in its original nature, in its final consummation, and in its present reality. So all of this comes back to uh, life in Christ in which the image of God is restored in us. Any questions thus far? Uh, Sort of reviewed the biblical evidence and now... Turn to the more to the tradition. Okay, great. We'll keep plowing along. You got it? Okay, good. <laughs> okay, so, um, you know, I, I, I will say that. Um, On this subject, uh, the image of God, uh, we have a great guide in a a document produced by the International Theological Commission, uh, which is um, sort of an advisory body to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Uh, And and in 2004, they published a document, I, I believe the title was Communion and Stewardship, under which to consider the theology of man and the image of God in light of contemporary challenges. Of course, in 2004, uh, that commission was chaired by Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger. Um, And so this uh, document, as well as the Compendium and the Social Doctrine of the Church, which has a whole chapter dedicated to the image of God, uh, really provides us with some clues, not only of how the tradition views Uh, the biblical uh, witness, but also uh, how to understand the tradition 
and this doctrine of man made in the image of God informing um, our response to some contemporary problems, which I believe is, is part of what you'll be doing over the next uh, several weeks, uh, considering the social doctrine of the church. So uh, this document, after considering some reasons for the neglect of the doctrine of the image of God in the 20th century, uh, including uh, it quite, I was interested to see, the proliferation of images in mass media leading to confusion about the term and concept of image as being a reason why the commission uh, felt that the, um, the doctrine had been neglected, the commission reflects on the retrieval of this doctrine, especially in the Second Vatican, at the Second Vatican Council. And so the fathers of the International Theological Commission write, it was not until the eve of Vatican Council II that theologians began to rediscover the fertility of this theme for understanding and articulating the mysteries of Christian faith. Indeed, the documents of this council both express and confirm this significant development in 20th century theology. In continuity with the deepening recovery of the theme of the imago dei, the image of God, since Vatican II, the International Theological Commission seeks in the following pages to reaffirm the truth that human persons are created in the image of God in order to enjoy personal communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and with one another in them and in order to exercise, in God's name, responsible stewardship of the created world. In the light of this truth, the world appears not as something merely vast and possibly meaningless, but as a place created for the sake of personal communion. So we have a clear line drawn here by the International Theological Commission from what we first see in the first chapter of sacred scripture to man to, to the communion of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in which we are called to participate in our own lives. So, you know, in Thomas Aquinas, and TJ was overly generous, I think some uh, ladies who wear white and black at this parish would have a better uh, sense of, of this than I do. But in Thomas Aquinas, the Imago Dei is the basis for participation in the divine life. And the image of God is realized principally in an act of contemplation in the intellect. And this conception can be distinguished from that of St. Bonaventure and the Franciscan school for whom the image is realized chiefly through the will in the religious act of man, right? So in Aquinas, intellect comes first. The mind comes first, right? We, first, we see, we contemplate, we behold the truth. And the truth leads us to action, right? We act in accordance with, the, with what the intellect has beheld, in Bonaventure and the Franciscan school, which is, which is valid, um, though I will note that the church has declared St. Thomas Aquinas to be the common doctor of the church, the common teacher of the church. But in the Franciscan school, intellect, frankly, doesn't matter, right? You can, um, uh, and, it, and it suggests even that the will could act in a way that is discontinuous 
uh, dis- with, the, um, with the will, uh, that the mind and the will could be at odds here. And, and, you know, I think from a Thomistic perspective, certainly, but more generally from a reasonable perspective, that is, um, that is a challenge, right? So we behold in our minds through contemplation the truth, and then we act in accordance with the truth, and that is the Thomistic uh, view. And so the Thomistic view, uh, the teaching of St. Thomas here, per usual, helps us to locate the importance of this doctrine within the broader scope of moral and sacramental theology. And then ultimately, moral theology being a branch, or sorry, the social teaching of the church, the social doctrine of the church being a branch of her moral theology. So um, by derivation there, we have uh, Aquinas' view of the image of God as being part of moral and sacramental, as being um, uh, leading us to moral and sacramental theology, which then takes us down to the level of the social doctrine of the church. And so here's sort of briefly uh, how this goes. Uh, Man uh, comes to a knowledge of God. He uh, sees God in his intellect. He contemplates God in his intellect, which uh, then leads to action, uh, habits, uh, which themselves uh, create uh, within uh, man's soul, develop within man's soul the virtues Uh, permanent dispositions to do the good, uh, which are fortified by the church's sacramental life and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, which allow for participation in God's life in the order of the new covenant, and thus the image, uh, through participation, the image uh, is restored and realized in Christ. And again, we come Uh, face-to-face with a challenge from Protestantism and from the Protestant reformers that frankly denies the possibility that man can participate in the life of God, that man is simply uh, viewed by God, that God chooses to see man as something that he's not, as something restored rather than fallen, and that man fundamentally is not able at the level of his being uh, to participate in God's life. But for someone like Aquinas, right, all of it, the virtues, the sacraments, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are ordered to participation in God's life and that man can truly be at the level of his being transformed and the image at the level of being can be restored in, um, in God. I mean, and this is at the heart of we are all called to be saints, right? It's at the heart of the universal call to holiness. Um, you know, and of course, the great paradox is that through humility, right, we uh, attain to that sanctification. Um, but it's, you know, I think we uh, uh, often ignore in Catholic Uh, practice, not in Catholic theology, but in Catholic practice, the essential role of the sacraments, the essential role of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the essential role of the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, which are infused virtues, right, which we can't just attain on our own. We have to attain them in in partnership 
with uh, Christ uh, in the sacraments and with the Holy Spirit, we tend to not think of those as um, gifts of God for helping us live truly moral lives in which we, can, in which we ultimately participate in God's life. Right? And of course, the, the next, uh, next step in that journey right, is a realization that, that God's love calls us to participate in his life. Right, that it is not this um, distant uh, love, that it is a love that draws us to himself for participation in his life. He really wants us to share in his life, and he, most importantly, gives us the means, sacraments, grace, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, by which to participate in his life as an act of his love. Right, exactly, exactly, right. But 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 you know, I think many of our uh, many people in in the world today who are faithful church going Christians, they uh, come to this realization that God loves them, and then they stop. Right, and frankly, they're not given the means, the resources. Uh, in teaching to recognize that they have to continue to cooperate uh, and they have to continue to move along a path of participation in God's life and in God's love, right? That it is, uh, it is a, a, a great realization to realize that God loves you, but then what, right? How do you act on that? And, uh, you know, I think that's really where a lot of people um, get... get uh, sort of fouled up, and they need to continue moving along a path of participation in God's life, which we have uh, in the sacraments of the church and in the uh, virtues and in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and that, frankly, our Protestant brothers and sisters, um, through their denial of the sacraments, they cut off the means by which to participate in God's in, to participate more deeply, more fully in God's love. Of course, they have elements, as the church teaches us, of uh, sanctification and truth, but they don't have all of the means of participating in God's love and God's life. So um, there are some uh, critiques of the uh, doctrine of the image of God uh, from the world around us. Uh, the, the, there are three that. Um, immediately come to mind. Uh, the scientific critique that on the basis of science, we now know uh, that the cosmos is not um, created by God, is not created in the image and likeness of God. And so this notion of the image of God is frankly um, delusional, right? Because uh, the scientific quote-unquote critique uh, dislodges God as our creator, then there's the critique of Marx and Freud and others uh, that, who argue that it is God who is made in the image of man, right? That, that, that uh, ultimately God has uh, a, a real being is uh, an illusion. And then there is a, you know, an, an interesting critique um, 
the critique of liberal theology or perhaps the critique of the Episcopal Church, uh, that the image of God elevates man and sets him on a throne to the detriment of the environment and animals, uh, and that uh, the image of God is a, is a false elevation of, um, of man uh, to the detriment of the creation uh, around us. But of course, a proper understanding of the image of God uh, places man at his, in his proper place. It orders creation uh, so that we can be appropriately stewards of creation, and creation itself does not become uh, elevated to either the place of God or the place of man, that, that creation takes its rightful, uh, rightful place when the, when the doctrine of the image of God is correct in our minds. So into this ambient culture, a step to the Second Vatican Council, and in particular the teaching of the Council in Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. And, and here, again, I'm quoting from the International Theological Commission. Invoking the theme of the image of God, the Council affirmed in Gaudium et Spes the dignity of man as is taught in Genesis 1 and Psalm 8, among other places. Within the conciliar vision, the vision of the council, the image of God consists in man's fundamental orientation, which is the basis of human dignity and of the inalienable rights of the human person. Because every human being is an image of God, he cannot be made subservient to any this worldly system or finality. Our finality, our end, the, the, what we are oriented to ultimately is God, and it's nothing earthly, it's nothing created. Right? Our end is beatitude. It's the beatific vision. It's life with God. His sovereignty within the cosmos, his capacity for social existence, and his knowledge and love of the created are all rooted, creator, are all rooted in man's being made in the image of God. So, in sum, this seems to be saying that the sum of social teaching, uh, the, the the sum of the church's social doctrine is rooted in this fundamental concept that man is made in the image of God. But basic to the conciliar teaching is the Christological determination of the image. It is Christ who is the image of the invisible God. The Son is the perfect man who restores the divine likeness to, his son, to the sons and daughters of Adam, which was wounded by the sin of the first parents, Adam and Eve. Revealed by God who created man in his image, it is the Son who gives to man the answers to his questions about the meaning of life and death. The council also underscores the Trinitarian structure of the image. By conformity to Christ and through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, a new man is created, capable of fulfilling the new commandment. It is the saints who are fully transformed in the image of Christ. In them, God manifests his presence and grace as a sign of his kingdom on the basis of the doctrine of the image of God. The council teaches that human activity reflects the divine creativity, which is its model, and must be directed to justice and human fellowship in order to foster the establishment of one family in which all are brothers and sisters. So, three things. First of all, the saints, 
we want an image of what the image looks like restored in Christ, we look to the saints. Um, Human activity reflects the divine creativity, which is its model and must be directed to justice. And what did we say about justice earlier? Religion is an act of justice, right? Religion and worship are acts of justice. So to be just, we start with giving God what is God's due. And then finally, uh, it is on the basis of the image of God restored in Christ, the image of God in us restored in Christ, that we are one family in which all are brothers and sisters. So the church's teaching of on solidarity, for example, is rooted in the fact that the church is, uh, that, that we are all made in the image and likeness of God. And so here we have two additional strands, uh, communion and stewardship, uh, which is so critical to contemporary moral theology and the church's uh, modern articulation of her social doctrine. So finally here, just a few, few additional thoughts. Uh, the dignity of the body, I think, is critical here. As composites of body and soul, it is both body and soul that are made in the image of God. This is an affirmation of the dignity of the body. And this is uh, especially important since the Enlightenment and the prevalence of uh, Cartesian thinking uh, after Descartes, Rene Descartes, which locates the dignity of the person and thought alone. I think, therefore I am, thus denying the dignity of the whole person, body and soul as a composite. And here again, St. Thomas helps us in what the fathers of the International Theological Commission call the Thomistic synthesis. Um, Thomistic anthropology, which drawing upon the philosophy of Aristotle, understands body and soul as the material and spiritual principles of a single human being. So when we talk about man made in the image of God, we must remember that we are always talking about man, body, and soul made in the image of God. And thus, the dignity that we might, um, the dignity that we accord to the soul as a result of this doctrine should also be applied to the human body. So this also has tremendous implications, I think, for sacramental theology, which involves the whole person, body and soul, as well as for moral theology, right? Think about it. We, we are, are moral beings in great respects through our actions, right? We, we develop as moral beings through our actions, through, through specific habits, right, that cultivate in us virtues, right? If I want to be uh, charitable, for instance, I cultivate uh, uh, acts of love, right? I, I cultivate acts of charity. I go out and do things that are charitable. I do things that a charitable man would do. If I want to be a just man, I do things that a just man would do. And those habits take root in the soul and with the influence and of the, of the, of the um, uh, sacraments, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the infusion of the theological virtues, I become a just man with God's help. And we receive, right? Think about the sacramental life. It is, it is a bodily 
um, it, it, is, it happens bodily. We receive the body and blood of Christ in our body and in our blood, right? And it is in that, um, uh, it, it is in that act uh, of reception of something material, something fleshly, uh, that the, this, this, um, uh, that we receive Christ's body uh, and soul. So the whole body participates in the image of God, and any efforts to deny one or the other inherently unchristian. Uh, This teaching also uh, enforces for us the inherent difference between the sexes, uh, which is is not culturally contingent, right? Uh, The difference between man and woman is inherent. It is natural. uh, It is rooted in uh, creation. Gender and sex is not uh, fluid. It's not permeable, uh, contrary to what the world around us uh, says, but this opens up a whole other line of thought, which I'm sure you'll get to, but fundamentally, right, because of the image of God, uh, because of the image of God in man and woman, man and woman created for one another, uh, we have a concept of gender, which is certainly countercultural in the age of Caitlyn Jenner. So, and then finally, the stewardship of creation and the biological integrity of human persons are also themes that are considered under the moral and ethical uh, and social dimensions of the doctrine of the image of God. They remind us that our powers of science and industry leave us with the ability to distort the world and the person made in the image of God, and that our participation in the lordship of the Father over creation as a consequence of bearing his image leaves us with tremendous responsibilities of stewardship that cannot be abdicated. And I think it's just critical here that science and industry, that the, the, the disorder of... Um, modern technology, like when modern technology, when modern science, when all of these things are not in their proper relationship to God as our creator and to man made in the image of God, then the image of God in man can be, um, can be distorted. And as a consequence of that distortion, the church is very clear, right? When we, when we allow that disorder to take root, man's dignity is compromised. Uh, the integrity of man is compromised. That man's rights, which you know, the church affirms here in Gaudium et Spes, are inalienable. As a result of being made in the image of God, man's rights are compromised. Right? And so we have to be very careful to maintain in society this right ordering. So finally, I want to quote at length this beautiful passage Uh, This is the last thing I'll say from this document of the International Theological Commission, which I think sums so much of this this up into a, a, a complete thought. Between the origins of man and his absolute future lies the present existential situation of the human race whose full meaning is likewise to be found only in Christ. We have seen that it is Christ in his incarnation, death, and resurrection, 
who restores the image of God in man to its proper form. Through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians 1.20 At the core of his sinful existence, man is pardoned, and through the grace of the Holy Spirit, he knows that he is saved and justified through Christ. Human beings grow in their resemblance to Christ and collaborate with the Holy Spirit, who especially through the sacraments fashions them in the image of Christ. In this way, man's everyday existence is defined as an endeavor to be conformed ever more fully to the image of Christ, which is a restoration of the image of God, and to dedicate his life to the struggle to bring about the final victory of Christ in the world which I would add, is the ultimate uh, end, goal, finality of the church's social doctrine, as was made so clear to us in uh, those first encyclicals on the church's social doctrine, which had as their theme and their focus the kingship of Jesus Christ. So uh, with that, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Any other questions or comments? Right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think critical insight, right, is that metaphysics has, for the most part, been so metaphysics being the study of being qua being, right? Uh, it, it, it's as an academic discipline, it's been destroyed, right? And so. Right, and, and frankly, it has, um, I mean, I don't want to blame everything on Protestantism, but I can't help but think that this can be blamed on Protestantism, right, which has, which has elevated the, the, the primacy of uh, uh, sola scriptura to the point that uh, any sort of external to scripture or uh, pre-scriptural or pre-Christian uh, philosophical concepts, um, which, you know, are, are heavily prevalent in metaphysics are dismissed, right? And so what you have... Right. Sure. Downplay doctrine, yes, and downplay metaphysics. I mean, the church here is clear, right? I mean, and this is... Um, Vatican II, of course, did not, in the, in the, the age after Vatican II, did not uh, destroy what had come before. And, and one of the things that had come just uh, 60, 70 years before was the encyclical Eterni Patris on the restoration of Christian philosophy in uh, the, the, the spirit, the vein, 
the tradition of St. Thomas Aquinas, right? And so St. Thomas Aquinas, who is very reliant, as we all know, upon Aristotle, who had a well-thought-out metaphysics that conforms to reality, uh, this should be the basis. Um, no one has abrogated uh, Leo XIII on this. This should be the basis for not only Christian theology, uh, St. Thomas being the common doctor of the church, but also any Christian philosophy, right? And so we cannot study, we cannot get to where we ended up tonight without a proper understanding of being, which is the goal of any properly Christian metaphysics. All of these problems are the result of, of some sort of disorder, right? Um, and, and when we, we, we rightly order the intellectual life, the life of the mind, uh, starting with uh, a right philosophy and, and ending in a right theology, um, we solve a lot of these. It's in, in the image of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And so, I mean, here the tradition points the very earliest pages of sacred scripture are preparing the way for a fleshed out uh, and complete doctrine of the Holy Trinity, which is ultimately revealed to us in the New Testament. But the, the uh, just sidebar, uh, the fathers of the church, uh, in particular Irenaeus and Augustine, had uh, a whole sort of, I mean, reams and reams of paper spent on uh, what is the difference between an image and a likeness, uh, and that the image is, is uh, in some sense, uh, fully destroyed, one school of thought, the image is fully destroyed in the fall. Uh, the likeness remains, uh, that the likeness is something uh, less ontological, less at the level of being uh, than the image. And so it's the likeness which remains uh, in, the, in the age of sin. But that's neither here nor there tonight. So, I mean, I think here we're in, a, in an age now where um, because we are so unmoored as a culture philosophically that philosophical arguments, uh, my opinion, rarely work anymore, right? And so I think we need to go back to something even more ancient, uh, to, the, to, to the early church, where the image of God or the value that we place as Catholics on the individual made in the image of God was evident from the way in which um, Christians behaved, right? That we, uh, we rescued babies who were discarded. We cared for the ill. Um, I mean, when you think about the first 300 years of Christianity, where, um, I mean, it's totally, but like, when you think about it, Christianity in the first 300 years coming into this, um, this um, milieu of, of Rome and, and Greece, it, it seems it comes off as t like totally bozo, right? It's wacky, right? Until the Christian people uh, start to do things quite differently and quite in a way that it is quite compelling in terms of not discarding their children. I mean, where we are today as a culture... Uh, we have been before in the West. Yeah, and this is, the, this is you know, as Pope Benedict has, has said, and um, uh, others, I mean, they're, they're Jewish thinkers who think similarly, that 
this is the time for a creative minority uh, that uh, really does things like show, demonstrates the value we place on the image of God and the dignity of the human person through uh, caring for um, children, caring for the innocent, caring for the orphan, caring for the afflicted, uh, caring for all of those, uh, collecting, literally. I mean, that's what the ancient Christians did. They would literally collect the children that had been disc- discarded. Uh, that's our, in some ways, that's our task today to, to make an argument um, by, the by the action. You know, you know it, the, the two things that I would just say to that, to, I mean, Pope Paul VI, um, blessed Paul VI, uh, saw this in the 1960s, uh, what the church needs now are, are witnesses, uh, not arguments so much, witnesses. And Pope Benedict, um, before he was Pope, one of the great lines, uh, that the two most compelling uh, uh, arguments for Christianity are found in the lives of the saints who are her children, the church's children, and the art that has grown up in the womb of the church. That that sort of intentional commitment to beauty uh, does not take root in a culture of death. Great. Thank you all.